Welcome to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. It's a podcast about the nuts and bolts of life in rural Australia. The good, the bad and the beautiful. Twenty twenty will surely go down in history as the year that drought, bushfires, floods and COVID nineteen brought the economy of Australia to its knees. I was talking to Sue Dowling recently. She is from the Sisters of the North and today we're talking to Sue Dowling. Sue said to me that hope is what you need to really pull yourself through any sort of disaster. In 2019, the Sisters of the North charity was set up after donations started pouring in to assist communities in the northwest devastated by the worst floods in memory. Sue Dowling lives in Cloncurry and is a co-founder of Sisters of the North. The charity received $1.25 million in donations from around the world. The Sisters of the North provided the ping of hope for those communities devastated by the 2019 floods. In those floods, which affected an area twice the size of Victoria, 500,000 cattle died. It was described as a massive humanitarian disaster. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first of all, how is Western Queensland in the northwest coping with COVID-19? Over to Sue. It's a funny one. I think here in the West, we we went into lockdown like the rest of the country and now continue to be sort of shut off in, in, from a state point of view. We're slowly seeing the, well, not slowly, actually, as soon as the, you know, you could travel into, in, in the state, the caravans are on the road. So they're starting to come to turn up. And I think there's a little bit of apprehension like, okay, we've, we've done the hard yards like everyone else. We've remained COVID free. Don't, don't bring it. We don't want it. We don't need it. We don't, you know. Um, I think early days there was a lot of anxiety, particularly in the health services, the what if factor. You know, there's no way in the world we were, we were prepared enough early days, but now we are, which is which is what it was all about to give us that time. But, yeah, I think mixed bag. Businesses are probably doing it tough on as well because they're missing that tourist trade. You know, we do what we have to do. And I think at the end of the day, COVID itself is is bigger than us and we just have to do what we have to do but certainly we're not going we're not prepared to um become complacent a couple of years ago you and peter were very involved in the formation of sisters of the north what on earth is sisters of the north remind us all (laughs) it was just a an idea that came up between a group of women at a wedding in fact it was just sort of like we wanted we at the time going through a drought and we just needed that sort of that up, that, that bit of get together and just to treat ourselves. It was focused on women. It was to be an all women camp draft and, and to have like a, you know, beautiful stalls and that sort of stuff. And it was just basically an excuse to have a get together, um, <laughs> which is, you know, obviously very important. But then along came the floods in, in, in early or late January, early February 2019, morphed into a charity because of my husband, uh, another lady from central Queensland, Kelly Shan, who's been very instrumental in the whole development of the, of the charity and a bloke called Claycini. He was the geek. So these three minds were in a room and around them, they could see the despair happening um, there at the Tamworth landmark also. And, as the floods are unfolding up here and, and the devastation that it was causing, uh, you know, that was just 
news was traveling it was just desperate and they thought we have to do something and kelly said we have to do something and clay suggested well let's start a gofundme page and so from there we need to call it something so peter goes call it sisters of north susan susan and a couple of others already got something happening call it that and wooshka it's like um this is here we are we became a charity we we had to really scramble fast because the the funds the donations came in instantly within four days i think we'd raised a hundred grand and within 10 days a quarter of a million dollars and in the meantime we were able to touch this money because we weren't actually established as you know we didn't have our charity status complete yet <laughs> so we did a lot of we did a lot of um fast tracking and yeah luckily uh we had the office of the prime minister on our side and they they really guided us through helped us out we had you know um we had a lawyer who had to really work hard for us and yeah within within probably about three weeks from that day we became a fully blown charity how much money did you actually raise all up we could probably account for 1.25 million dollars so within 16 weeks of that GoFundMe page being set up, which only took 10 minutes, we raised a million dollars in 16 weeks. And I think that just sort of goes to show the scale of, um, of the floods, what was happening up here. But I think our, our model too, we were guaranteeing that the money was actually going to be staying local here in the northwest. Um, that, was, that was part of our constitution right from the start and we developed a live voucher system around that, which an unbalance of money was sent to a, a participant who applied. They had to meet a set criteria and we were focusing mainly on the primary producers, the workforce who had to clean up the carcasses and um, as well as, six, you know, that sort of group of people. So, yeah, we called it the ping of hope. So when they drove into town... They got their ping via an SMS message to say that you've got, you know, some money sitting there on, on your phone ready to spend in town. So they could go to any businesses who were participating in the live voucher system and, and spend their money. So that was, you know, that was that ping of hope gave them some hope that they could go to town, get that haircut that they needed or buy the car feed or buy some t- like the, the the varied ways people spent their money was really it was incredible and it was, you know, it helped businesses if they wanted to be involved. They just had to encourage people to spend their live vouchers at their shops. So it was a win-win situation all round. But people across Australia were hugely, hugely um, generous in such a short amount of time and we even had some funds come in from overseas as well. So we got a great spread. You're listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Life on the land can be tough, but the people who live there choose to live where they live. And there is a sense of community you won't find in the city. So what you spoke about, the desperation, the devastation, what was it like? in your area what were you seeing amongst the people that in the communities and particularly in the six shires that you're operating in yeah look, looking back on it um it was, it's actually all a bit of a blur to believe it or not but i think people were just lost it was just you know they lost a lot of cattle as a region we lost a lot of cattle you know over over 500 600,000 head um i don't think that's really hit home in in our in our cities and 
you know, the devastation of it all, the infrastructure, you know, all the polypipes, the, the fencing, road works, and even the railway line got smashed between um, Julia Creek and Richmond. So, you know, uh, yeah, people I think were just days. They just thought, wow, like it was just really tough going. But incredibly, though, and I know this word's used a hell of a lot in the bush about the resilience, I think people just did get on with it. Like once the initial impact was dealt with, they, you know, it started drying. It was disgusting work. Like the poor, like the, 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 the smell, the, 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 the description of, of what it smelt like and was, was just horrific. People talked about it for weeks and months afterwards about the smell still being up in their nasal capacity, nasal cavities. And so what they saw, like this is their lifeblood. This is what they had worked for for generations you know, to, to and, and the genetics of the beef and the and the horses that were lost. It was it was just huge. So you can imagine then that yeah, the aftermath was pretty horrendous. So you spoke about the ping of hope and you talk about hope as being just so important, the hope that there is some sort of future in this sort of isolated world. I mean, how do you yes, there was the ping of hope through being able to have a haircut or do, trading in the business but how do you maintain that sort of sense that there is hope out there it's a good question and I think hope it can be instilled in a couple of ways I think the support that was was brought on by the government also provided that extra bit of hope It, it sort of topped up the hope again mental health services were there so if people did feel the need to talk they were able to um seek help but I think, though, too, what we did as Sisters of the North, we were actually, um, we put a lot of an allocation of money towards community events. And our, with our biggest message is getting together, like getting together, surrounding yourself with positive people and just realising that you're not alone. And, um, you know, sharing your story is, is, is sharing your feelings and all that sort of caper. But you realise then by listening to someone else, think, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not alone in this. So... I think that all helped with the with the sense of building that hope in the whole in the whole recovery. I'm not alone in this is really important rather than just saying that other people are worse off than me, that there is a sort of a shared experience because I know when there's rain somebody everyone said, Well, we got a bit of rain, but there are others that are missing out. In this circumstances, I'm not alone. It is terrible, but I can share that experience. Yeah, and I think you're right. People, like from the charity perspective, people still did say, oh, but there's someone worse off. We won't apply. And my rebuttal to that was that's fine if, you're not, if you feel that someone is worse off. I mean, there's, that's always going to be the case in any, you know, in life. But this wasn't just about them as a, you know, as a person being impacted. This, this whole charity cause was also about supporting our local business and rebuilding the region as the whole at like together so I think if you sort of took the individual pain out of it and say well look you can apply to this charity and and be a part of of helping others as well so yeah and I think you know the the response we got out of we sent out over 700 applicants off a database that we, we worked with local councils we got over a, um, it's about a 70-odd percent um, return rate to those applicants. So, you know, I think, yes, people felt they were de- dreadfully impacted, but they also felt that, okay, this is, 
I don't know. They, I think that the response was that, okay, we're not alone. We, we are. We are eligible for this. So where are people at now? We're over 18 months since the floods. From the flood perspective, no one really talks about it anymore. Definitely, I think the support from the government or whatever, it helped people get on with it. We've since then, like, obviously, we had a really light, wet season this year. So the, and the grasses, the pastures didn't come back after, after the floods as well. So there's been that real, a long time since, you know, since then and now in watching the aftermath and, and where people can be. Like restocking wasn't that possible for some people because of the past it didn't grow back and it's still that case. Where there is grass, in came the, the bloody, you know, grasshoppers and, and ate what was there. So, look, I think it's probably, you know, dare I say it, life on the land again. Like we're still just still battling the elements and um, doing the best we can. Disasters also expose the vulnerable. Like if people who were in a vulnerable position beforehand were probably, you know, just exposed a little bit more. Um, so they're probably in a situation where they're having to sort of really redesign their business. Um, and I think it really sort of helped people do a bit of a stock take in the way they do do their business, you know, even in town businesses and even I know um, our own business, we had to sort of basically reinvent and, and think about things, doing things a little bit differently. And, you know, that can be, I think, the silver lining in, in, a, in this disaster, you know, try, you had, to, you had to do, like, try things differently to, to be able to survive it and to be able to revive and get, get going again. So, I think lots of people, it's all lots of different layers. Like some people have been really pragmatic at the beginning and just got on with it and sold places to get to, to manage their debts and what have you, whereas others are, are doing it differently. They're going to trade their way through it. So, yeah, and I think that the town businesses probably early days there was a lot of construction going on, in, like not so much here in Cloncurry because we're a different demographic, like different area again we have the mines so maybe most of the businesses weren't as impacted as what the smallest um, centres are like the Wintons and the Richmonds who are very pastoral oriented um, but thankfully there's lots of roadworks on there was a, the railway to be fixed so that brought a lot of industry into town for some of the businesses. You've been listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app and leave me a review. Music was composed and presented by Luke Aidney.